0: Well, my question for you this morning is: Who knows you? There are those who know you by passing acquaintance. Perhaps you went to a Christmas party, so yeah, I, I remember you. You were, I met you at the last year's Christmas party. Or you have colleagues and you have friends that you know fairly well. At, at each step, someone kind of begins to know you better until you come to that close friend who has known you for years, with whom you've, you've shared your perhaps your vulnerable thoughts. And then there's family. There's the sibling that uh, we're close to, maybe has known us all of our lives. There's the parent, who definitely has known us from the day we were born. Or there's the spouse, who knows everything, or almost everything about us. Because what's the reality? No one knows everything, do they? No one knows every thought, every feeling, everything that makes us who we really are. And indeed, if we're honest, we don't even know ourselves fully. And yet there's someone who knows us fully. There's someone who knows everything we've ever done, Everything that has happened to us, every thought, every feeling, even what we have kept hidden from ourselves. Someone who is known as not only at birth, but at conception. And not only at conception, but before we were even conceived in our mother's womb. This is the God who knows you. Now, last week... We were looking at Psalm 139, and I invite you to turn back with me to 139. We looked at verses 1 through 13. Now we're looking at 14 through 26. You can use uh, the church Bibles. You'll also find the, uh, the psalm as a bulletin insert um, as well. But we had noted that the, the theme of the psalm is expressed in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Everything is just a development of that one line. And David is, if you recall, he's just enthralled by the depth and the intensity by which God searches him and knows everything about him. As he says in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I, I cannot attain it. Then he goes on to meditate on the thought that the God knows him because, well, God is everywhere. Wherever David goes, God is always there. God is the God who is there. Now the focus moves to just kind of really the knowledge itself. David now contemplates how deep, how far back, God has been giving his attention to knowing God. God knows David, not only because he can just keep following him all around, but because he knew David from the beginning, the very beginning. So look with me at verses 13 and 15. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And then verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And we're going we're to come back to verse 14. But I put these two verses together because you can see how they run parallel to each other. This is Hebrew poetry. They'll it, take a line and then kind of repeat it on the second line or take a verse and repeat the thought in the second verse. So what David is saying is that God knew David while he was being formed in his mother's womb. In verse 15, he puts it more poetically, woven in the depths of the earth. So David's point is is that his frame was not hidden from God because God is what? He's the one who's knitting the frame. David is God's handiwork. So, it's easy then to see why that verse 14 was inserted between these verses. Because David just gets caught up in the wonder of it all again. And here he's marveling over the wonder of the human body. Verse 14. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. That last line captures the deep feeling of David. He doesn't just have this kind of intellectual interest in the human body. He's awestruck by it. He is humbled by the created human body. He's, he's awestruck, humbled by the God, the maker, who weaved that body. And so David reflects on how the Lord knows him so well because he, he is David's creator. And he then takes the reflection even further, in a more wondrous level. Verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So God not only saw David as an, as an undeveloped embryo, he had already planned out David's earthly life to the very day. And when we receive news that someone is pregnant, you know, we'll begin to wonder, well, what's what's it going to be like? Is it going to be a boy or a girl? And, and as I guess the embryo develops further into a fetus, and they can now start to determine whether well, it's going to be a boy or a girl. We can We learn a little bit more perhaps about the health. And then, as time goes on, we learn a little bit more and more. The baby is born, and then we begin to observe how the, the personality develops and so on. And it's always a wonder how one child will be one way, the next child comes after is a, has another different personality. And given who the parents are, you know maybe we can predict some of the qualities about the child. But we really, when it comes down to it, know next to nothing about the future of the child. We don't know how long the child will live. We don't know what awaits uh, the child each year, even the next day, even the next hour. And really, our knowledge only demonstrates how little knowledge we actually possess. But God knows everything about the individual. And not because he Well, he happens to have a book about it. But because he is the author of the book in which our days are written. So the master creator is also the master author. And he can know that the book that he has written will be followed to script. Because he's also the sovereign God who possesses the power to carry out his will. To put it simply... David is saying that God has everything under control. God has David's life under control. Now he continues this delightful meditation on the attention God gives him in verses 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand I awake. And I am still with you. And this Hebrew word for for precious, it denotes the quality of being rare. So David is saying that he regards each thought of God towards him as like a rare jewel. The truth of the matter is that God's thoughts of David are far from rare. They are vast, numerous. He may as well try to count every grain of sand in the desert. There is never, never a time in which the God of the universe is not thinking about David. Now, the meditation concludes with this simple, perfect line, isn't it? I wake, and I am still with you. I love reading that line to anyone. I go to the hospital, and I love reading that line. is a word to them that when they awake from surgery... God will be with them. But the whole meditation point here has been sort of like a daydream. David is is lost in these awe-inspiring thoughts of God and then then he awakes. Comes back to reality. But unlike the times in which, you know, for us, we, we awaken from a daydream to the reality that life is not like that. But David awakes to find that Well, actually, God is there for him. That is the reality. Now, the next verses, they seem out of place. Indeed, I mean, there are some commentators who even think that, well, you know, maybe this was another psalm that just kind of got put together. Because up until now, the psalm has been this delightful meditation of God's being, who he is, And how he relates to David. And now the whole tone changes. To one of anger. And David's focus turns to the wicked. And he makes the very first petition of the psalm. Slaying the wicked. Let's read verses 19 to 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now I mention I often will I'll read this psalm when I go to the hospital. One reason why I often end up reading it is because the people I visit I'll say, Do you have a particular scripture you'd like read? And they will say Psalm 139. Well, when I read this psalm, I always skip these verses. It just kind of spoils the mood, you know? So what's up with David? I mean, why all does he throw these things in? Well, one thing that's up with David is to remember, David is king. And that means a number of things for David. First of all, as a king, he is constantly dealing with enemies of his own throne and of his own nation. They might be nations of hostile countries. They might be within his own borders. They might be just right around him. But secondly, and this is more to the point, as king, he has the responsibility to do his own searching out of injustice and wickedness and to uphold justice, and righteousness. As king, he must be the chief enemy of wickedness. And then the added factor for him is the particular nation of who he is king of. He is the king of Israel, the holy chosen nation of God, chosen for the express purpose to exalt the holiness and the glory of the Lord. This must be the attitude of David. So the wicked, note how he describes them. The wicked are men of blood. That is, they commit violence against their neighbors. But then note what he lists as their peculiar crimes. They take God's name in vain. They hate the Lord. They rise up against the Lord. In the same way that in our own country, we denote crimes against individuals as what? Crimes against the state. David's doing something similar here. He's depicting wickedness as crimes against God. And as, again, as the king of God's covenant nation, it is the honor of God that he must uphold and must be foremost in his thoughts. So in that light, they they fit in well here. See, David has been meditating on God being there for him, of God knowing him intimately. And that kind of meditation serves two purposes for him when he starts to come back to the real world. First of all, he's comforted. He doesn't have to face these enemies alone. God is with him. But he's also motivated. To do battle with these enemies. Because if God is there for him, with him, cares so much for him, then all the more he should be opposing these blasphemous enemies. In short, what these verses do is they take David and us back to the real world. Where he must daily live and do battle. He cannot remain in his his fortress meditating on just delightful thoughts of God. Or to put it another way, his theology has to be practical. It can't just be a little private of experience between him and God. It is to equip him to live for the glory of God in a sinful world. But what is really interesting This psalm is the conclusion of the psalm. Look with me as we're getting to the last verses. Verse 23. He's been talking about the wicked and suddenly he says, Search not the wicked. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See, this is the ultimate petition in application of the psalm's meditation. This is where everything is really leading to. Search me, David says. No, my heart. And yes, those are the same verbs that were in verse 1 when he had opened up saying, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. So here we're getting to the real point of the psalm. If you ever want to know how to Try to get, like, to understand a book of the Bible, one of those old New Testament epistles, or here to understand a psalm. One of the the key ways of doing that is you read the beginning lines and you read the last lines. And that'll get you there often and often. Verse 1, he's saying God is the God who searches and knows him. Verse 23, David invites him to do just that. But for what purpose? Well, we're going to get to that. But look, first of all, more closely at verse 23. What is it that David wants God to know? Is it his mind? No. It's his heart. And David means the same thing that we mean when we say the heart. He's saying to God, know the real me. Know the deep down me. And that next line parallels the same thought. He says, try me. That means search me by putting me to the test. Put David through the fire to see what he is really made of. Boy, that's a bold prayer, isn't it? And he says it because as much as he he hopes to be He's not quite sure that he is as pure as he makes himself out to being. When he's out there condemning the wicked. You know, you get those bad guys and then he begins to think what's inside of me? Now, the translation I'm using, the ESV kind of misleads us as we continue along in this verse when it talks about thoughts, you know, know my thoughts. And kind of When I was reading it, I was thinking, well, this is the same word about God's thoughts in verse 17. But it's not. If you got the NIV, the New International Version, it's got the right translation. David wants God to know his anxious thoughts. It's a different word altogether. And you can see, can't you, how the anxious thoughts correspond with the heart. And we all have our theology. Hopefully we have a good correct theology. We have the intellectual thoughts. But what we know in our heads doesn't always correspond with what we're feeling in our hearts, is it? Our head says, God is sovereign, everything's okay. Our heart says, I'm not so sure. And David is is petitioning God to get down to that level. Now we're getting to the purpose of all this searching and testing, this, this deep knowing of God. Verse 24, and see if there be any grievous way in me. I want you to find it out, God. And what's the purpose of that? And lead me in the way everlasting. God, run all the tests you can on me. Find out whatever bug I got, infection, defective chromosome, whatever you, however you want to call it. Find out whatever is grievous in me that's causing grief in me, that's causing grief through me, that's causing grief to my God. And then once you've gotten there and you've revealed it to me, then be my shepherd. Be my shepherd and lead me. That's the same word for lead that David had used way back in verse 10 when he had said, even there, your, your hand shall Lead me. Take me away out of the grievous way and lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in the way that will bring me to you in heaven. Or as David puts it in Psalm 23 6, so that he might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, I'm so frustrated working on this Psalm. Two Sundays is not enough to do justice to this beautiful, profound psalm. And as I mentioned, it's a favorite to you, isn't it? And one of you had mentioned to me last night well, I'm so glad I came because this is my favorite psalm. And when I would visit uh, Leona's son and say, Leona, well, what would you like for me to read? Most times it would be Psalm 139. So in closing, let's, let's just recount, why is it? Such a beautiful psalm for us. Why do people like this so much? Well, we love this meditation on God's nature, don't we? We like that thought. God is everywhere. God is with us wherever we may be. It's great to know that God is all-powerful and that he created everything. It's wonderful to know that God created each one of us. And how did he do it? We're fearfully and wonderfully made. God knows everything and everyone. God knows each of us. He knows our actions. He knows our words. He knows our thoughts. He knows our hearts. He's always known us. He conceived us in his mind, and then he caused us to be conceived and to develop in our mother's wounds. He has set our very days. Because of who God is, we are never lost. We are never forgotten. That's one one of the reasons we, we love this psalm so much. We love this meditation on God's attentiveness. You know, I made a big deal last Sunday about boy how suffocating this attentiveness could be, and I imagine most of you were thinking, Well, I no, I never thought about it in that way before. God is, because you understood what he's saying, is God is not indifferent to us. He's always thinking about us. He's, He's searching us, examining us, testing us, because he cares for us. He goes deep in there. He goes deep into our heart. And we like that. We like that there is somebody who knows us, someone who we can open up to. And then I think we like it because we identify so much with David. You know, we connect with David, you know, when he's responding to God's character. You know, that when he just blurts out, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. We go, yeah, I know just how you feel. When he's contemplating God as the creator and he just has to say, look, I, I just got to praise you. I mean, doesn't it just feel so Right. It just feels so right. Of course you are going to praise God. It feels that right. How good it feels to know the Creator, to be able to turn to the Creator and just say how wonderful you are. See, that's what we were made to be, wasn't it? I Man's chief end is to do what? To, to glorify God and to enjoy Him. That's what David is doing in this psalm, and, and we join with him when we read this. So we identify with him in his praise of God. We also identify with him, I think, with David's response to wickedness. Now, I've got to be careful here. David is not our model for how to love our enemies. You know, just just not going to find it there in the Psalms. However, he is our model about how we should feel about wickedness, about sin. Violence, bloodthirstiness, malice, blasphemy, these are things that should repel us. We should desire therein. We should not let our culture, which we tend to do, start to make us feel comfortable with attitudes and behavior that dishonor God. And then there's one other thing, whether consciously or unconsciously, I think we identify with David. And that's our human frailty. You know, there are other psalms in which David seems to even boast about himself, about his righteousness and how he's innocent. You know, he's not like those bad guys. But he doesn't do it here. And he can't really do it here when he has meditated on the searching knowledge of God. Because when it comes down to what lies deep in his heart, He's not so confident. His, his thoughts about himself, well, they're anxious thoughts. He realizes that when God searches deeply, deeply, what he's likely to find are some grievous ways that really are controlling how David lives out his life. And we also know that about ourselves, don't we? Come on. We have anxious thoughts about ourselves, about what's happening around us. Like David, we, we've got the head knowledge. We've got the theology down. Yeah, he's sovereign. Yeah, he's caring. But when the times get hard? It's when we struggle with anxiousness. And though we know in our minds that God is in control, you know, we still worry. Sometimes we'll still even take matters into our own hands. Though we know that God cares for us, we still act as though we need the idols of money and success and pleasure if we're going to be content and happy. So like David, we need the Lord to do some prying into our hearts to reveal for our own sakes any grievous way in us. And finally, we identify with David's hope, don't we? Of that everlasting life we even identify with his solution for obtaining that hope, it is to be led by God's hand like a shepherd along the everlasting way. We'll not reach the goal through our own efforts. We will not be good enough to be acceptable, especially in light of God's searching knowledge of us. We have no hope of God finding us good enough. Our hope lies in our Lord. Providing the way, taking us along the way. And I want you to think about this, and I always think about this whenever I read a psalm of David and he's praising and glorifying God. We know something better than David. David knew the everlasting way lay somehow in the work of God, but he didn't know exactly how God would do that work. He looked to the good shepherd, but he did not know the shepherd who would come in the flesh who would provide the everlasting way for his sheep by offering up his own flesh as sacrifice for those grievous ways of David and of us. And so we're left with this understanding. As you begin 2018, think of this, that the one person who sees and knows you thoroughly, who knows you just the way you are, It's the same person, the same God, who loves you thoroughly. Who gave up his son for you, knowing exactly who you are. And who is determined to lead you, even as you continue to stumble in your grievous ways, along the ways everlasting, until you reach home to glory. And so, to paraphrase verse 14, we praise you, our God for we are fearfully and wonderfully saved. Wonderful is your work of salvation. Our soul knows it very well. That We give you praise for this wonderful salvation and this wonderful confidence that we can have because we can trust in your promises. Trust in you because you are the God who is there for us, the God who knows all things, the God who is in control. That You will lead us. To that way everlasting. Christ's name. Amen.